0: He was on the operations side, decided in you know in around two thousand two to jump onto the other side and was able to witness firsthand great stories like Brian at HubSpot, HubSpot, Matt at namely, really wants people to understand it and how to focus on pricing axes. Keep it simple when you're around five million, have maybe two or three of those guys. Then as you need kind of scale professional services, he has no problem with, just make sure you scale it at a zero percent contribution margin after you get some sort of product market fit, and as long as it drives up LTV and retention. Additionally, again, likes to invest in category leaders, but more important. And he likes to find guys like Matt Straz and Brian Halligan that have the ability to sell their ideas into a market, to raise capital, to recruit, which he believes is the third core pillar these founders need to have. Lastly, again, he's trying to codify all this for you guys at 4 and also at the 0 to 100 Matrix Growth Academy. Check them both out. This is the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn. Hello, everyone. My guest today is David Skok. He's best known for his blog, ForEntrepreneurs.com, which covers many startup topics such as SaaS and how to build a repeatable, scalable, and profitable growth machine. He's a serial entrepreneur who founded a total of four companies and did one turnaround. In 2001, he joined early-stage VC firm Matrix Partners as an investor. His successful exits as an investor include HubSpot, JBoss, AppIQ, Tableau, NetEzza, Diligent Technologies, CloudSwitch, TribeHR, and many, many others. Today, he serves on the boards of Atomus, CloudBees, digium namely hr Salsify, and xias david focuses on early stage investments in enterprise software SaaS, cloud computing open source and more david are you ready to take us to the top yeah ready to go i love that all right first things first let me get uh i want to hear right before you jumped into the vc world 2001 did
1: you do a turnaround right before that no. The last company I did was an application software server. Uh, it was uh, in the very early days of Java. We were the first to jump onto Java and create a Java-based server. Uh, later on became J2EE, Java 2 Enterprise Edition. And um, that was, uh, went public in 99 and uh, was acquired by Novell in 2002. That's great.
0: And then, and then you
1: jump in. What made you go to the dark side, as many would say? Yeah it's a great point. I you know, I'd done five startups by that stage and it, the you have to also think about the time frame 2001 2002 kind of a black time in the startup world. The idea of doing another one wasn't that exciting and I knew what really made me passionate was actually helping other entrepreneurs. So felt like a great place to do that was from the venture capital world because you're in a, a good spot to not only see a whole bunch of things, but um, be in a place where you really were actually able to influence and, and help the startups directly and do many of them at the same time.
0: As you've done that, you've collected an impressive amount of data. I want to jump in kind of directly to some of these questions. First off, so, you know, recently in SAS Talk New York City, you argued that really folks should fix conversion rates before driving more traffic. You're talking about kind of the funnel. And yes. my question to you is a lot of the CEOs that listen to this show. The problem is they lack confidence in their conversion rates when the traffic sample size is small so right. at, so at what point do you switch from getting enough traffic where the conversion rates are meaningful and leading indicators to switch to improving the conversion metrics
1: well, so I, I would say what we're looking for with conversion rate is evidence of product market fit. And uh, there are some other ways that you can get a product market fit beyond just data itself. So one of the top ones of the whole lot would be engagement. Are the customers who uh, have signed up for your product actually using it? And if they're not using it, why are they not using it? And what can you do to fix that? So that would be the, the first place that I would say you want to start fixing is um, the actual success uh, of successful adoption and getting the results, the business results that the user bought the product for. And you don't necessarily need to have many customers to be able to focus in on that. But if you don't have that working, the last thing you really wanna spend your time on is wasting time getting a ton of new customers if they're all gonna churn and uh, not be successful with the product. So I would say start fixing uh, things there. And once you have things fixed there, then you're gonna come back into trying to build the funnel to acquire more of them. And um, my, my thought there is you're going to have a, a, a series of phone calls if you don't have enough volume to try to find out why people aren't converting. So you don't just simply look at numbers and don't have the, the uh, qualitative data as well. So the quantitative is one part of it. But it, when it's thin in the early days, pick up the phone, start talking to people and actually find out from them why this is not appealing to them and try to understand whether that's fixable or not as well. So that's, that's kind of where I would, 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 try to advise people.
0: When SaaS CEOs are analyzing onboarding metrics related to questions like what do we have to get a new customer to do in the first day to increase their lifetime value or decrease churn exponentially, uh, Many people have trouble setting up that decision tree uh, in their head. In other words, what what format do they set up? What system machine do they set up to reveal what that activation metric is? And some challenges that they've articulated to me are, you know, set, you know, the, the customers will say that they're buying for one reason. But when they actually track the, the things, the clicks they're doing in the software, they're doing something totally different. And that's what's leading indicator for stickiness.
1: So how do you make sure the two match? Yeah, it's good. Good point. Well, so I, I would definitely start with you. You generally speaking, you have a view of what your product's business benefit is going to be for the customer, and the customer generally speaking will declare to you that they bought the product for a specific reason. So, in the case of say a HubSpot, they would have bought it for more leads and maybe better conversion rates on leads. And so, what you want to try to get inside uh, of, of of is what exactly uh, can you do to get them to that. Uh, business benefit as fast as possible. So don't focus in on engagement and usage, because in all honesty, some of the very best products I've seen actually have very low engagement because you simply do a sign up for them and they simply just start working. And if they have great business benefits and low engagement, that's the very best kind of product. It's, you can in other words, it's out.
0: like it's like a security tool and it's preventative. So you don't want the user logging in every day. That means there's problems.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, 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 you know, certain products you have to log in to get yeah. the results but, um, it's, it's a fake metric. The real metric that you should be focused on is what, what business benefit are they getting? And sometimes usage is a, is a way you can get to that, but it'll be very specific usage. So, um, understanding, for example, um, is there a metric inside of your software like there was inside of HubSpot to be able to figure out how many new leads that they've, they've generated as a result of writing a blog post or how much improvement there's been in the conversion rate as a result of doing some nurturing using email or something like that. Those would be clear uh, metrics that you could take that, that would really show that the products actually do what they're for. And that's going to be sticky and um, Uh, give them what they're looking for. So I think try to peel apart why people are buying your product and really focus in on what's the fastest way you can get them to that benefit. Cut out everything else you you need to do. And where necessary, uh, recognize that some of your users will just do this very well themselves and some of them won't. Some of them are not gonna be actually great at competencies of using the product itself. And if that's the case and you really wanna care about getting high retention rates, recognize that you're probably going to have to do some of that for them and with them. Uh, and, and make sure that they actually get that benefit as, as a result of, um, of signing up.
0: Once you've got product market fit, you then start to look, I mean, really to drive additional growth, you've got to start looking at how to drive meaningful expansion revenue to get to the beautiful holy land of negative, obviously negative churn or more than 100% net revenue retention. Um, while, you know, when I asked Brian Halligan this question when he came on the show, he talked about exactly what you talked about, which were introducing variable pricing axes. You know, most people start around something that they see others price around, like number of users. Users Or a feature set combination, but then you start adding on these activation related kind of consumption things, which are, you know, data use server space taken up, you know, measurable things walk me through because you were on HubSpot, I think from the early days, walk me through how Brian and the team really went through identifying which axes to use aggressively because they had a huge pool to choose from.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. And you really have, uh, you've done your work here, you've, you've studied the, uh, the, 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 the issue. So in, in HubSpot's case, we started with, a, with an idea that simplicity was going to be great. And so we had one price point, which was 500 bucks a month, $6,000 a year for every single customer, regardless of what was going on. And there was no expansion access. Uh, and we thought that was was great because of the simplicity of it. But then we ran into recognizing, okay, we've got no chance of hitting negative churn. So the the thought process you go through is, can you use users? And in the marketing area, that's not a great proxy, particularly in small companies, because there aren't really lots of people needed in marketing to um, to to make the product work well. And there typically isn't a large organization, not like sales, for example, where actually seats is a very good uh, metric of of um, how much value is being derived. So you look for value. So how can you find a pricing access that equates to the value that the customer is gonna get? And I think in HubSpot's case, what we arrived at was the two things. You could have more sophisticated versions of the product that offered more powerful features, but the really interesting one was leads, the lead count that was in the system. So uh, HubSpot, if it was doing its job well, would generate more leads for you. And that was high high evidence of good value being delivered. And if you were running uh, a large lead base on HubSpot, you were going to get high value also from the nurturing and the email marketing uh, capabilities of the product. And so using lead count was a great way to go for for the uh, the variable access. And I think as long as the customer feels like whenever they pay you more money, They equate that to to getting more value from the product. You're in good place. If you you have a situation where your customers don't like your pricing, it's typically because it's not aligned with the value that they're getting out of it. And you're you're not able to demonstrate to them they're paying you more because they're getting more value. I'm
0: going to ask for a few more examples here from your portfolio company. So December 1st, 2017, uh, we had uh, we had Matt Straz on from Namely. He talked about how, you know, they've raised obviously over 150 million bucks. They would do 25 million run rate in 2016, well north of three million a month today. But they had less than 2% churn, and their retention numbers were really through the roof. Walk me through what they base theirs around. So HubSpot was number of leads. What's Namely?
1: Yeah, so Namely is number of employees. So that's, uh, again, quite an easy one to um, recognize if you're doing payroll or if you're doing any kind of benefits or anything like that. The number of employees in an organization is going to definitely equate to the amount of value that you're getting from the system. Um, and then to really get things going, um, what, what um, Namely did was to identify that they could add other capabilities like benefits administration was was a big one that they added onto the product. Um, actually, they started with HRAS and added payroll. So the goal is to get people onto all three of those cap- the, those major modules. And then um, be able to charge them on a per employee per month basis, which is pretty well recognized in the um, in the HR space as being a good a good one there.
0: One one last example, Lever. Are they using the same axes as Namely?
1: Uh, yes, they are also working on the on the same si- size of company kind basis. Kind of HR HR tech, right? Yeah. Um, so
0: let's not push this to the extreme, right at what, you know, hubs, you know, Brian talked about how they're using science fairs to always generate new ideas and they've got a well-oiled machine there. The, the risk of these things is you end up with 7,000 products, hundred thousand different pricing axes, and your salespeople don't know where to start. So at what point does it get too complex and how should someone listening right now with say 5 million bucks in ARR, a team of 25 people profitable with a million raised in the past, like h- how should they think about when it's too complex?
1: Yeah, great, great point. So I think um, when you're at five million in ARR, you probably want to have two pricing axes, possibly three, but not, not more than that. And you want your pricing to be simple uh, because the customer, it should be easy for them to buy and easy for them to understand what it is that they're, they're paying for. So I would say two and keep it simple to start off with. Great. Uh,
0: wrapping up here, I want to talk a little bit more about um, as startups start off with that you know a a pricing plan that might be less than 30 bucks a month they then drive growth by moving towards more expansion revenue more variable pricing axes is it typical and do you see in your data set a time period where logo churn could be 30 percent annually but revenue churn is five percent as pricing increases and expansion revenue machine really gets dialed
1: in Yes. So that that can definitely happen. But to me, it's a bad sign. Um, Any logo churn number that's greater than 20 percent per annum is worrying. And it's evidence that you don't have good product market fit in one of your customer segments. So what I would do there is I would recommend every startup look at the segments in their customer base and split them and start doing the metrics by different segments. So for example, you might have large customers, medium customers and small customers as your segments, or you might have some industry specific thing about them. Like you might have high tech as, as one segment and, um, healthcare is maybe a different segment. If you've got high churn, what you want to be trying to do is understand why is there a difference between the people who are sticking with me and expanding and the group that are signing out? There, there must be something, some characteristic about them that makes the product not work. So one example of, of a company where I saw a big uh, difference like this was conducted down in New York. They had some customers that were expanding like crazy and loved the product and some customers that were churning. And we found out that the real key was that it was the nature of the users. The users that were sticking with the product were pretty advanced users that really understood how to take a tool and apply a tool, whereas the ones who were churning were the ones who really were not that sophisticated and wanted an application, not a tool. And so what what Conductor really needed to do was either change the way they qualified people so they didn't sell to the people that weren't looking for a tool, or better still, change the product and build an application layer or alternatively, maybe a services layer that would actually run the tool and set up the tool for the, the group that we're used to looking for the more application layer. So it's, it's that diving in to, to segment and understand why are the logos churning? If they're greater than you know 20 percent per annum do not be happy with it you should you should not accept that and recognize that that's going to be a problem for you in the long term um and really you know if you can try to get it even into the 10 percent range although that's hard if you're dealing with smaller sized customers out there do you guys remember the last time you sat
0: down for a meal with a friend or a business colleague and they pulled out two phones and put them on the table do you remember what you thought Whenever I see this, I go, oh gosh, what a tool. But look, sometimes you can't blame these folks. They're trying to separate their personal lives and their business lives with two separate phones. Some of you guys with just one phone might get frustrated when you're not sure if calls coming in are personal or business. And we've all gotten a call from an unknown number and wondered if it's, again, a business call or a random caller. Well, now there's a new tool in town making all this easy. Sideline gives you a second number so work and personal communication can live on one device. With the Sideline app, it's easy to own a dedicated business number and still separate work and personal numbers, again, all on that single phone. You'll know when work when calls are for work or if they're personal, you can keep things private. And I love this part. You can text from these two separate numbers. So clients versus customers versus your own kind of personal friends, all from one phone. You'll look more professional. You can automate texts whenever you're busy and you can team up with others on your team to share responsibility for that one single phone number in case you're away or not available sideline comes with calling texting picture messaging and more giving you all the value of another phone without having to pay for an actual new phone right now you guys can download sideline for iphone or android for a free seven-day trial or learn more at sideline.com forward slash trial that's sideline.com forward slash trial last question here before I switch over to matrix and your thesis there. Um, SaaS companies uh, will privately tell me, Nathan, you know, we just closed around at a great valuation, but we had to kind of disguise our professional services revenue because the investors hate it. They'll say things like it's low margin. But what we realize internally is when you put a setup fee on these folks, the lifetime value triples. And so Clayton Mask is a great example of this. You know, Infusionsoft was churning 8% of, lo- you know, logo churn per month back in the day. This was 2012. He then added a $500 or $600 setup fee. And so there were more, higher quality leads coming in that then they could put touch on because the, the cost that could Economics made sense. And, and it scaled very nicely. So if, a, if an entrepreneur comes to you and says, David, we're raising, we're really healthy, but 20 percent of our revenue on a cash basis is professional services. What's your response?
1: So I have no problem with that. So I, I'm going to sort of give you a quick, very short story here. This is an imaginary story, but the story is you're you're an employee at um, Glackendecker and you go to a annual meeting where the CEO stands up and he says, I've got good news for you and I got bad news for you. The good news is drill sales are up like crazy and we're beating plan. The bad news is we're not giving our customers what they want. Customers <laughs> would like to be able to walk in and buy a packet of holes. And yeah. if we could give them that, if anybody and, and never this never has this become more obvious than than, you know, uh, Uber coming along and disrupting <laughs> rental car companies, because you could be focused on the you know the rental car mode of thing and not recognize that what people really want is transportation from A to B. So what, why I bring that up in this particular case here is I think it's super important for entrepreneurs and founders to focus in on what is the whole, not the drill, that the customer is looking for and find a way to give them that. And sometimes it's really important to have services doing that. And in particular, in the really early days of a startup, I actually really like having services that are deeply engaged with one or two customers because that's how you really learn – whether the product's actually gonna work or not work and what are the issues that could make it um, work better or or, um, that are holding it back from working well. Um, And if you really are permanently stuck with a long uh, services need with customers, then what you would do is find a channel partner that uh, and, and create a channel program and hand that skill over to them and just keep one or two customers so you keep familiar with what the services need is and, tr- and be able to, in a position to train those partners. But I don't worry about it because it ultimately, to me, so long as this company is really sensitive to how to get the customer the benefit that they are looking for, and if services are a part of that, then I'm actually very on board with that. Um, I do have one thing that I look for. It's it's actually very hard to achieve in the early days, which is I like to see them running the services at a zero uh, gross margin, zero contribution margin. And and um, tell folks what that means. So what that means is if you've got five people and they cost you, let's say 100K each, so you've got 500K of annual expenses in your services group, you want to be getting as much revenue uh, to cover that. So 500K of revenue per annum uh, in the services area. That's great. And again... I, I will warn people, don't try to get that too early. It's 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 sometimes the wrong time too early in the business. So I'm not looking for that to happen immediately. That's kind of, you know, I talk about businesses being, find a way to get your repeatable sales. That's the first thing. Then try to find a way to make it scalable. Then try to find a way to make it profitable after that. And that's the profitable part is that's when you might start to worry about, can I get my services to a 0% uh, contribution margin?
0: Guys, David just mentioned the benefits of kind of outsourcing these things to value-added resellers or channel partners. Brian Halligan, when he came on, articulated in a very nice way how they ran an internal test on services. Didn't do so well. Now they have probably one of the most, maybe the most healthiest or the healthiest ecosystem of partners. And they really scaled that that thing well. He went into detail on that show on how they built that. So be sure to go check that out. Switching, David, over to Matrix. Um, Many VCs will say, you know what? they're happy to pay a premium for category leaders, right? When I look at your portfolio and I look at company like, you know, Matt at namely great company, right? But you've got gusto, you've got Zenefits, you know, hundreds and billions of dollars into this space. Some would argue namely is, is maybe not a category leader. Maybe, maybe they're at the top of the pack, but not a category leader. How does, how does matrix think about investing and do you use the category leading indicator as a, as a, again, a key indicator?
1: Yeah, we do, actually. And and I'll tell you the, the rationale behind the Namely investment. Um, I'd actually uh, come up with a very s- simple um thing as a result of investing in a pre- previous HR company called Tribe HR that got sold to NetSuite and the thesis there was pretty simple which was millennials were entering the workforce they were all used to Uber Facebook Instagram etc they were coming into the workforce and they were seeing applications like Workday and uh, others like that that are incredibly painful to use uh, the guys at both um, Zendesk and HubSpot were using Workday and we were able to go to them and say, you know, what do you think of this product? And they, they told us that they hated it. They had to have the six-page document next door to them to just go through an employee review. <laughs> so, so the thesis was simple. This new um, group of tech-savvy workers were coming into the workforce and expecting to see the same quality of tools that they have in their consumer life on their mobile phone, and they weren't getting it. And whoever in the HR space built a product for the employees and the managers, not just the, employee, the, not the HR administrator, was going to do extraordinarily well and to my mind namely is the leader in that particular segment that we think is an important segment and then if you look at the space that they're running which is the 52 actually it's 20 to 2,000 employees is the size range that they work in there's really no major established player there other than adp and adp is a, an easy target i think you're probably familiar with what i've seen which is i haven't yes. yet, have yet haven't yet met a happy adp customer at this yeah, point i can i can i can back that uh but yes, you know, to reinforce your thing, you know, we do care a lot about category leaders if you can find them. Oftentimes, you have to take a bet on something um, different to that. And one of the key things that we will take a bet on is the quality of the entrepreneur themselves. We really deeply believe in looking at the person Um, Trying to figure out, do we think that this person is the best placed person to come up with the right kind of ideas and to sell their ideas to hire a great great team behind them, be able to raise capital, etc. And we'll back that person, even if it's not that clear how category leading their idea might be. And that's proven to be very successful for us because those those kind of key entrepreneurs just uh, do amazing things.
0: Well, Matt's episode did well. So I would say everyone else agrees with you. He's extremely talented, uh, despite being in a competitive market. Uh, let me, the only thing when you're investing in category leaders that could potentially come and throw a wrench in your strategy from a VC perspective is when someone raises so much money, they can essentially play kingmaker. SoftBank's yeah. $100 billion fund is essentially creating monopolies in certain areas be, in certain countries, right? Uh, like ride sharing. You have an investment in Didi. Is SoftBank's $100 billion fund affecting your an original Didi thesis at all?
1: Yes, uh, I think the answer is it's a very dangerous um, phenomenon. If you are on the wrong end of it, you're going to get damaged by it. Because when you look at Didi and Uber, they threw just tons of money at dominating the market in the early days. They effectively bought riders and they bought drivers. In China. Whoever in in China. Yeah, yeah. And whoever and and, and also in the US, actually, I think, um, um, you know, still it's probably now uh, factor that 's that 's gone from this market because they've they 've focused on profitability here, but in the early days it was certainly a case of you know if you if you were in a competitive environment, you needed to buy riders and you needed to buy drivers as fast as you could do same thing happened in in India where we have an investment in Ola, which is the leading ride sharing company as well and so coming uh, having a softbank come in and fund the buying of a market like that with tactics which are effectively um, you know, pouring money into competing in a non-profitable way, that's very hard to compete against. Fortunately, in the B2B space, which is where I focus, we don't see that half as much. And it's much more important that to have a rational strategy for customer acquisition. So we haven't yet seen SoftBank enter into the B2B space and, and do a kingmaker strategy yet.
0: Yep. David, good stuff. Let's wrap up here with the famous five. Number one, what is your favorite business book?
1: Uh, favorite business book for me, crossing the chasm, believe it or not. It's an old, old, old book, but it's still amazingly relevant. And I can't believe how many times I'm still helping to effectively teach its, uh, mantra to new entrepreneurs in a way that's helpful to their business.
0: Yeah. Beautiful orange cover. Jeffrey Moore's a real talent and it's hard to write a timeless book in that space. He managed to do it with principles that still work today. So crossing the chasm number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying? Uh,
1: yes, um, I think uh, Satya Nadella at Microsoft, interesting situation, came and took over a company that didn't have a particularly positive image, um, great prior leader in, in Bill Gates and interim bad management. I think he's done a remarkable job in turning that company around. And I'm actually a fan of Microsoft these days, which I thought I would never say. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I hold some of the stock as a result of that.
0: Number three, what's your favorite online tool for building uh, kind of what you're doing
1: in the VC world, David? Uh, that's a good point. I'm actually, you know, it's a funny thing. I'm because of not wanting to pollute my brain with other people's ideas. I'm actually fairly careful to stay away from reading too much of what other people are saying about startups. And that's, it may sound like a really odd thing, but I always want to be writing from my own heart and not be, you know, sitting there and worrying about, am I going to be copying somebody else or anything like that? So I kind of tend to stay away from stuff there.
0: Number four, how many hours of sleep to get every night?
1: Oh, God, that's a rough one. Probably six to six and a half.
0: Not okay. Not horrendous. I've heard some three and four hours. Six and a half is pretty good. And,
1: and what's your situation? Married, single kiddos? Married, married with uh, But my daughter's 26 and working down in New York for WeWork. So oh great, uh, nobody left in the family other than my wife and myself. And David, how old are you? Um, I, I am 62 at this point. Okay.
0: Last question here. Take us back to your 20 year old self. Before you went through those five stars, before you jumped into VC, what do you wish that guy knew?
1: God, I I wish he knew what I write about in my blog, because I I think most entrepreneurs today, the first time entrepreneurs, they come from a product or a tech background, which is exactly what I look like. And I didn't know anything about how to build a go-to-market machine. I didn't know so much about business. So to me, the top thing that I try to um, do, and I, I don't know whether you've heard about this, but I've got a, a new thing called the Growth Academy that we're going to be running in on September the 11th in San Francisco. And it's aimed at exactly that topic, which is how do you take a first-time founder who's come from a product or technical background and teach them everything they need to know about the go-to-market, how to build a repeatable, scalable, and profitable growth machine that sits on top of the product that they they, they pretty much know how to build a product and how to get product market fit. But that second phase is very tough for them.
0: It's called the zero to 100 matrix growth academy. David, where can people learn more about it?
1: Uh, it's on for entrepreneurs.com and uh, just or, or just search for zero to 100. That'll be the best place to, to find it in Google. And uh, it's an event that we very much welcome entrepreneurs and their management team to come to.
0: Guys, there you have it from David. He was on the operations side, decided, in, you know, in around 2002 to jump onto the other side and was able to witness firsthand. Great stories like Brian at HubSpot, HubSpot and Matt at Namely really wants people to understand and how to focus on pricing axes. Keep it simple when you're around five million, have maybe two or three of those guys then as you need kind of scale professional services he has no problem with just make sure you scale it at a 0% contribution margin after you get some sort of product market fit and as long as it drives up LTV and retention additionally again likes to invest in category leaders but more importantly he likes to find guys like Matt Straz and Brian Halligan that have the ability to sell their ideas into a market to raise capital to recruit which he believes is the third core pillar these founders need to have lastly again he's trying to codify all this for you guys at 4 and also at the 0-100 to 100 Matrix Growth Academy check them both Without david scott thank you for taking us to the top
1: nathan thank you very much indeed it was a pleasure talking to you